off doing your English translation, but in Exodus is the word and. Uh, because he wants to connect, Moses wants to connect this directly to what just happened in Genesis. He wants you to know that this is a continuation of that same story that started in the first book, the book of beginnings. And so he wants us to look at that. And this text is not just huge for grammatical reasons, because that's pretty boring, but it's big for us because we will have moments when it seems like God is far from us. Each and every one of us will be faced with how do we respond when faced with unspeakable evil in this world will be forced to either walk in faith through fear or succumb to it. And we'll have to turn somewhere when we realize that we ourselves are enslaved and without hope to release ourselves. I'm gonna put my one point on the screen for the entire time that I read this text. Uh, so if you have nothing else, this hopefully you can walk away with. The reality that God is relentlessly pursuing his good plan of redemption. No matter how dark the scene gets on the stage, there is still absolute hope that God always does what he says he would do. And so we're going to read through Exodus 1 and 2, and it's going to get pretty dark. Uh, as I read, there's a lot of verses your mind might wander, but I hope they wander back to this reality. That God the God who created everything good, right, and beautiful, the God who pursued Adam and Eve after they sinned and rebelled against him, the one who had been faithfully keeping his story going through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph was who you learned about last week if you did the online liturgy. And now we're at a place where the story continues. Let me go ahead and read for us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. And as you know, Joseph was already in Egypt. Uh, this is the recap. If you're watching this on Netflix, this is the little part in the beginning that says, do you want to skip the preview? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, some of you just watch back to back, so you don't know that's there. If you watch a show one at a time, uh, there's this thing at the beginning that does a recap of the previous episodes. And so this is that little bit to let you know, here's where you're at in the story. And then it continues on. Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. Not of anything crazy, they just got old. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Wait, stop. None of you guys cheered. Like, like do you not, do you not, do you not catch it? Uh, you didn't, because it's like locked in this little sentence in the middle of this boring stuff about names. But what he just said, look back over that language. They multiplied greatly, increased in, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Think back a week or two. What does that make your mind go back to? Abram, right? Abram, when he'd gone to him and said, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and the sea on the shore, the sand on the shore, right? He's saying that's taking place. Like there is absolute beauty that the blessing of God that was gonna echo out to the nations was taking place. God relentlessly pursuing his plan of redemption. But that plan rarely works out the way we think it will. It hasn't throughout history and it won't in this scene. The situation was actually pretty bleak, but the blessing was real. I remember God is relentlessly pursuing his good plan of redemption. Verse eight, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. 
Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Uh, you have to remember that Egypt was a warrior nation, right? They were a country that was often at battle conquering other nations. And what this king who came after the one who had welcomed Joseph in as a refugee, who had welcomed his family in as political refugees, right? To get, be able to be provided for in the middle of this famine. As they come to him, he's like, wait a second. I don't care who he was before. Right now, if we were to get attacked and these guys came at us from the interior and we were being attacked from the exterior, our great empire might just fall. So how are they gonna deal with it? Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not a name, but it's a position. So just so you guys track with that. Uh, Pharaoh's not some dude's name, and it's not the same guy through this entire story. This story actually goes through at least four, three, if not four different kings of Egypt. But the author doesn't want to give them the honor of writing their name down, so he just gives them their position. And it's a way of slighting them in that culture to be like, it doesn't matter who they were. They all filled the same role. They were all pressing in. We're not going to give them the honor of having their name written down for all of histories. But this is probably around the time of Ramses one, two, like in that section of history. Like the place where you could actually go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, walk through their ancient Near East exhibit and literally see artifacts from this time in the world. If you're ever there and you wanna see something cool, uh, you walk in and you turn right, not left. Left takes you all the paintings and that's not my jam. But if you go right, you go to the ancient Near East exhibit and you can literally see images from this period of time. You can see images of, yeah. So it's pretty, pretty wild to realize that how these things play out in real history um, and see some of those artifacts. But back at it, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more evil pressed at them, the more God's blessings still worked through them. So Egypt became to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, which don't make fun of their names, because catch this, uh, the writer passes over the mighty king of Egypt, doesn't even mention their names. These two women that were the midwives, though, they get the honor of having their names listed in this story, so they will be remembered for their faith. And a magnificent honor to these women in a culture that would very often discard them. So these two Hebrew midwives, he comes to them. He says, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Let's not like miss the horror of that scenario. This is literally infanticide, right? This is murdering babies was the plan for how this Pharaoh was gonna deal with God's people. Image bearers of the true and living God to be wiped out because of their ethnicity. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. When the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Uh, I love this lie. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Such a great line. They must have told that story a lot, right? For it to be written down years later. What'd you tell them when you went to Pharaoh? We told them that you were vigorous, that you guys are way stronger than the Egyptian women. 
So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Catch this, as evil presses in, uh, God's people are still blessed. God's promises are not dependent on the circumstances. God's promises are dependent on God. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Do you guys catch that? So it went from here's the uh, midwives, right? Tell them that they should throw the babies away or just kill them, let them die to the difference of, hey, all of Egypt, I'm making an edict to the land. If you're around and you see a little baby boy, throw him in the Nile, let the crocs get him. How horrific is that? Like you realize the oppression of Egypt at this point is meant to be even more than just one nation and how they acted against a certain people. But this is the epitome of evil of a God setting himself up as a false God, one who would rule by terror and violence and oppression. Uh, you realize the Egyptians were holding the Israelites' political hostages, right? They'd come in as refugees and now were slaves. Uh, they were socially cut off. They were literally trying to kill off this nation by murdering their babies. Economically, they were dependent on the Egyptians, but not able to own land or have stuff. And then spiritually, what we see takes place is that the reason that they want to go, the reason that they have to leave is so that they can know God and serve him and worship him. And you realize that the bleak situation that they were in was political, it was social, it was spiritual, it was economic. There was violence, but even in the face of that cruelty and oppression, there are still words of blessing and life everywhere in this text so far as we've read it. That even as others look to do evil, even as the systems of the empire at the time look to work them over and eradicate their faith, that God is still at work behind the scenes doing exactly what he said he would do. He is faithful. He is relentlessly pursuing his plan of redemption. And there was no way that an enemy like Egypt could strategize or manipulate him away from what he was about to do. But how would he bring rescue? Surely this couldn't be the conclusion of the story. Otherwise, it's a really bad narrative, right? Let's keep reading. We're at chapter two. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that it was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, because at three months they stopped being like, just like quiet and sitting there and rocking, right? At three months they start to make a little noise. And so she can't hide him anymore. And she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter, uh, many different people say, this is probably uh, the Egyptian queen hat she put. Uh, that's her name, just hat she put, put that into Google. You can see a little bit more about her life. But they said it's probably who Pharaoh's daughter was that had gone down to the river. Uh, they would go down to this river daily to worship the God of the Nile. They would go down to wash their clothes. They would go down to wash their bodies. This was a source of life for them and probably of worship. But the irony is that God is about to do something powerful through the daughter of the one who had tried to kill off his people. Again, making the wise of the world to look foolish through the strength of those that are often overlooked. 
So she opened up, uh, she saw the basket. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Her attendants were there walking along the riverbank and she saw the basket among the reeds. So she sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Moms, how cool of a story is that, right? You thought you were losing your kid. Now you're getting paid to raise him. It's pretty amazing. When the child grew older, she took him to the Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Remember, God is relentlessly pursuing his plan for redemption. And he's gonna use this baby to rescue his people. Don't miss this. Uh, it's beautiful. The people of honor in this story are those that are often overlooked. Two female midwives get their names mentioned in a lineage of kings. One baby is rescued out of the river, would be an orphan, is now a crowned prince of the Pharaoh himself. God's plans might seem a bit bonkers at times, but they are absolutely beautiful as he's bringing his blessing into this world. There's a lot that took place in those few verses. And it's wild, but for time's sake, I, I just want you to realize this, that God sets in motion a plan for redemption, but it wasn't just redemption for individuals' own even personal sin in this story. In fact, uh, we never read anywhere in the story that Israel was enslaved because they'd done anything wrong. The picture being built up, and, and this is gonna be the theme of redemption literally throughout the rest of your Bible, that's why it's such a big deal, is that Egypt was this oppressive power it's like sin's power in this world that influences everything from the political to the social to the economic and most definitely the spiritual. And this imagery of holistic redemption that God is gonna work is also the scope of the redemption that he works out when Jesus comes. So if you fast forward in your Bible just a little bit, there's another baby who's born of another woman during a time of infanticide. Matthew paints this story beautifully because Matthew's painting the picture of Jesus as a true and greater Moses. If you look back, you'll realize that Matthew is born to this woman, right? Then he has to flee. He becomes a refugee, just like the people of God were. In fact, Egypt is woven into the story again, just like it was in this story. And then Jesus goes into the Jordan River, which God's people actually went through. And then he goes out into the wilderness, just like God's people did. And then he goes to a mount to tell people, God's people, how to live, just like Moses would do when he goes to Sinai. All these layers showing and pointing forward, not just to Moses, this baby that was there, but to Jesus, the one who would come and bring redemption. God's redemption is broad in scope. And so the little pieces that we often look to, we need to realize that it's much bigger than that. And why does that matter? Because that means the scope of our mission needs to be bigger than just seeing individuals rescued from maybe their own bad choices. Because God's picture, God's plan is much bigger than that. We're gonna unpack the story of Moses over the next few weeks because it's such a big deal. And so we'll teach on it again next week. We're gonna look at the plagues. The week after that, we're gonna look at the Exodus where God's people are brought out of Egypt. 
And so we're going to unpack that each a little bit along the way. And so I'm going to hit pause on that story, but just ask the question, what does this mean for us then? The story is written to point our hearts to Jesus, to see him as the true and greater Moses who rescues and redeems his people. When all seems lost, he brings salvation in the most incredible way. And it's a salvation that's bigger than just individuals getting plucked out to go to heaven when they die, but it's holistic restoration for their lives. But it's also meant to shape our everyday life. And so what's this mean for us? Three things just for us. I think this story invites us to be acutely aware of our own slavery, uh, whether it's unjust systems or a taskmaster that we've cho chosen to serve in place of God. The picture of this story is that what sin does is it enslaves you, and it is a ruthless taskmaster. Uh, some of us are trapped in different systems where we feel the effects, not of our sin, but others, and they weigh down on us. Others uh, and all of us at some point make choices that also enslave us, that we, we choose to worship something or someone other than God, that we make something or someone else that which we wanna serve. And all the promises that that gives us end in slavery, disappointment, and oppression. Two examples for you, uh, take an affair. So um, somebody steps out on their marriage. Right? So what is that affair promise at the beginning? Excitement, enjoyment, fulfillment, satisfaction, adventure, whatever you want to say, whatever that is, it promises something that if you step away from your partner, if you step away from the one that you've covenanted your love to, step away and then buy this lie that this will offer a better, more satisfying experience for you. Step into that freely and see what happens. We step away from God's design and step into a master that is absolutely cruel and devastates. That affair could never give what it promised to give. And many of us have watched that happen if we haven't walked through it ourselves. But this thing that promised to be good and merciful and loving and kind is only cruel when we step into a relationship. Religion is the same exact way. When we come in and we say, all right, maybe I'll earn God's approval. And so rather than having God be one to be worshiped, we come in and say, all right, I'm gonna do this myself. Like I'm gonna work this out for myself and I'm gonna make things happen and I'm gonna make God have to love me because how good I'm gonna follow him. And we live our lives trying to follow the rules. That master is equally as cruel because at the end of it, you never know if you're secure. You never feel loved by God. You're always working for him. Like the older brother in the story of the prodigal sons who was so close in proximity to the father. But at the end of it, he goes, look, all these years I slaved for you. No love even in the equation. Unable to love the father or receive the love that was offered to him because he chose a different master, not the good father, but the way of working to make himself right. All of us at some point easily become a slave. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that? This is the, the beauty of this text and it invites us into a solution for that very problem of enslavement. We cry out to God. We cry out to God. Uh, Exodus is gonna tell us that God knows, God sees and God hears all those things. When the people cry out, he hears their cry. When he cries out, he steps in and brings rescue. In the narrative that we're gonna read, it had been 400 years they were in slavery. That's a really long time. 
the story we get to step into isn't the one of where is God when he doesn't hear us. This story is where is God, he's absolutely listening and present in the cries of his people. In fact, even when they're crying and they don't see him answering, we see that he is actively answering the promise that he had given him, isn't he? Even in the dark moments where they don't know how he's working, we realize that he's bringing life and freedom and blessing. We cry out to the God, the only one who hears, who sees, who knows, and who is able to save. So the question for that is, and how has sin enslaved you right now? Can you notice an area maybe where you're feeling entrapped, a hidden addiction, a substance abuse, anger, resentment, maybe even your past? Cry out to God. This story reminds us that he sees, he hears, he knows, and he's able to save. And the beauty of this is that we don't have to wait and see what happens. We actually look back to the cross, the ultimate telling that God is a God who hears. God is a God who saves. God is a God who rescues and brings redemption, that he breaks down those strongholds and offers life. Again, Jesus, the true and greater Moses, who doesn't just lead people out of slavery, but ultimately defeats it at the cross. His life shows what a fully formed life flourishing in God's kingdom looks like. His death shows that he has defeated the power of sin and his resurrection offers new life to all who would turn to him. It's the fulfillment of what this story points to in a small piece. We get to look back and enjoy. And if you're in a missional community, this one's for you. What's this mean for us? I think we do well. I think we'd really do well to look and see that the scope, let the scope of God's redemption shape the scope of our mission. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we're thinking through how are we gonna live and love well as a family of missionary servants in this world? How are we gonna be apprentices to Jesus saying, what does it look like for us to think well about the way that we live in a way that's gonna be uh, mirroring out God's multifaceted redemption? It's gotta be that the work that we do in the world among our neighbors has multiple facets as well. It's not one dimensional. Uh, this guy, Chris Wright, writes it like this. He says, the scope of God, our mission must reflect the scope of God's mission, which in turn will match the scale of God's redemptive work. For indeed, it is the Exodus that provides the primary model of God's idea of redemption, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New, where it's used as one of the keys to understanding the meaning of the cross of Christ. Uh, just a story real quick about what this could look like. So in our missional community, um, we were serving at Paz de Cristo, which is right down the street. And what Paz de Cristo is, is it's a place where uh, people who are working poor families, people who um, are able to come and get resources that they need it for jobs, they're able to get food if they need it, all these different things. But what that did is it put us in proximity with people who were trapped in systems that they really couldn't get out of. Like if you had an eviction, you weren't getting another home, right? If you had screwed up, made some bad choices financially, it was really hard to enter back into getting housing. And so we spent a ton of time around people who were experiencing homelessness. And it wasn't just all bad choices. There's really bizarre things that happen in life. Like if you can't pay your bills because you have cancer, you still have to live in a car. Like if you can't pay your bills because your landlord revokes your... Uh, lease and just says, hey, I'm done, by the way, that we met people who were living in cars or on the streets with mental illnesses, different things like that. We're like, man, there's a lot more going on than just somebody made a bad choice and now they're homeless. There is a much bigger picture of what's going on. 
And what I love is that, so through our MC and proximity with those people, uh, some of you guys know Ken and Mary and Adams that said, hey, this is a multifaceted problem. I think that we can be a part of extending God's redemption out into this multifaceted way in the mission that we're called to. And so they actually, I mean, long story short, went out and bought a fourplex, but they thought through ahead of time, all right, so what do people need? People need community. We're not just gonna buy one place. We're gonna buy something where people can exist in community around each other. Uh, what else does this look like? There's barriers that come with eviction. And so it's a little risky as a landlord, but they said, we're gonna take in some people that are a little bit more, uh, maybe high risk tenants, because that's what we feel like Jesus would want us to do. And then they thought through the different dimensions. What if you don't have a car? We'll put it right along the light rail. What if you need grocery store? Like that's a big deal to not have access to groceries. So they looked for places that were by grocery stores and they thought through all these different dimensions uh, that we see God's redemption reaching out to as well as they lived on mission. Again, just through proximity and asking the question, how do we love our neighbors well as fully like in this broad spectrum, not just one part where we're, can we go preach to them? Maybe throw a track at them? and hope they believe and then we'll be good to go. But seeing though, we wanna be a faithful gospel witness in word, but also in deed. And as all of us are sent out, we get to demonstrate that same sort of mission as we go into the world. Wherever God has called us, we, res we respond in a way that shows the breadth of that same scope. We experience it for ourselves first and they're able to reflect that back out to a world that's watching. So like God's, mission seemed a little bit crazy. It seemed a little bonkers that through a baby, he would rescue his people with Moses. How much more beautiful, even as we look at it, that we see that God would rescue us through another baby who grew up to be a man, who died on a cross in our place, was resurrected offering new life, and has called us now to go out and announce and embody that redemption that he's always been at work to accomplish we get to participate in the work he's doing. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, we gather here, we love you. We're so grateful. Uh, grateful that you have uh, given us stories that remind us of your faithfulness, that even in the darkest moments, we can still actively see that you are a God who is at work to bring life, to bring redemption, to bring healing. And then you send us out to be your hands, your feet, your voice, your presence among people today. And so I pray that we would be able to identify areas where maybe we are enslaved and look and cry out to you as a rescuer. And then maybe as our, our neighbors cry out and they call out to God that we would be part of who you use to answer their cries not because we're saviors, but because we can point to the one who is. Not because we're healers, but we point to the one who is. Not because we are the agents of redemption, but again, we point to the one who is. Uh, Jesus, would this church be a continued faithful presence? Would we with joy step into our role in your story? And like the midwives, fear you more than we fear any other God. And would we see ourselves mysteriously caught up in the beauty of your story? We love you, and we're glad you meet with us here. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing two more songs together as a family. And that's really good news, isn't it? <clears throat> and so while God uh, worked out his redemption 
and we look back at the cross and the resurrection as the apex of that, we still have a day that we look forward to when he restores all things and makes it new. And I want you to take the same exact things that we just heard with his unfailing promise, his unwavering purpose, the absolute certainty that he will do what he said he would do, regardless of how dark the day may seem. And so I wanna read over us, but if my voice lasts that long, a benediction from the book of Revelation where it paints that picture. And with the same certainty that we look back and say, yes, he rescued Egypt. Yes, he rescued at the cross and with the resurrection. We look forward to the day when he will restore. After this, I looked and before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. If you feel stuck in your missional community, if you feel stuck in your family, if you feel stuck in the city that you've been sent to or about to be sent to and you're wondering, all right, can God really do this? Hear this, in the future, there are people from that place ready to echo out the praise of the King. And they cried out and they were, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, hear this, salvation belongs to our God. It is his property. It is his possession who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A go now in the blessing of the Father, the provision of the Son, and the power of the Spirit to be his body wherever he sends you. Amen. Amen.